Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about last week's programme, looking at cocooning and self-isolation. You can still listen back to our podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Light app. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up on today's programme, after an examination of COVID-19 and how we got to this point, along with a focus on cocooning and self-isolation, on this week's programme, we'll be asking just how will our daily lives change when the coronavirus pandemic comes to an end. With parents now homeschooling and no crash facilities open, with more and more people all working from home, will there be any positive we can take from this and try and incorporate it back into our daily routine? We'll be discussing the working environment section in just a few moments' time, but first off, let's start with the childcare sector. And we're joined on the line today by Francis Byrne, who's the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Early Childhood Ireland. Francis, my thanks to you for taking the call today. Absolutely delighted to be with you, Andrea. Francis, just first of all, remind us of how the, I suppose, the current restrictions, the restrictions that have been in place for the past number of weeks. What does this mean for for your members? I assume everything is just closed. All crashes were told to close on the 12th of March, um, along with schools, when the Taoiseach uh, addressed the country uh, from Washington. And it, it, it did cause huge concern and, and it had immediate impacts, obviously, that crashes closed. Hundreds of crashes also immediately laid off staff thinking that funding would dry up. There was widespread concern um, and also there were parents obviously uh, very concerned. So Early Childhood Ireland immediately uh, did a number of things. We, we met with the Department of Children and Youth Affairs. They convened a meeting of stakeholders which was very useful that afternoon. And we also put some resources out to members so they could get in touch with parents. Um, and so on. And I suppose one of the lovely things that has happened since is that a number of our members around the country, and we've started to highlight this on our website, have started to do things to try and support uh, parents who, with younger children. There's a lot of resources available for older children, for primary and secondary school children, and indeed they've been getting lessons from teachers. Yeah. So in creches it has been quite different. So there's lovely things from, you know, a story a day in somebody's shed to all kinds of, uh, of other things. And indeed, we've had members around the country who made gorgeous packs uh, that weekend and very carefully uh, and appropriately drove around uh, various parts of the country. I know of one provider in Sligo and Mayo who delivered gorgeous packs to uh, eight, the 80 families um, who use who, who visit uh, her crash every day. So that was gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, so it's been... Um, very strange and a very tough few weeks. Mm-hmm. And how are your members, you know, coping and, and dealing with all of this? I mean, I know there's there's no choice in terms of the government restrictions, but I mean, h- how are they getting on? Well, one of the things that has been um, very worrying and concerning is the issue of funding. And I've been on with you before, um, Andrea, mm-hmm. Early Childhood Ireland. Uh, it's our constant mantra. People will know this, that Ireland has the lowest level of investment in early years um, across the European Union. So that means that creches rely very, very heavily on a combination of a low level of state funding compared to other countries um, and parents' fees, which as parents know will be very high. So on the 24th of March, the Minister uh, for Children uh, and Youth Affairs, Catherine Zappone, the outgoing minister, but the the acting minister for now, um, convened a conference call and announced a wage subsidy childcare scheme for the sector 
which was very welcome because unlike other sectors where the government is going to provide you know, an average 70% a week of wages uh, for the next few weeks and, and employers are being asked to top, top up by 30%. The government was introducing a special scheme for our sector where the 30% would actually be paid by, by the Department of Children and Youth Affairs, which was very, very welcome because um, it recognised the fragile nature of, of the sector and, and how low funding is. However, the scheme has not been initiated yet and here we are. Um, some two weeks later. Now, the Minister has written to uh, providers this week to say that there will be a critical meeting this week and um, hopefully there will be uh, messages out to providers with agreements for the new scheme. But meanwhile, um, state funding has flowed, but it has flowed on a week-by-week basis. So we've ended up in a bit of a mess where some providers, the the majority of whom had uh, continued to pay staff, have a shortfall in funding because they would have done it based on a cash flow to do with their normal funding and all of that. Um, and there are, I mean, the, the the department has said that about 78% of income that goes into the 4,500 creches in Ireland is made up of state funding. So on average, about 22% is made up of parent fees, which have obviously dried mm. up. But the problem is that in some cases, particularly in the commuter belt, of D- the Dublin commuter belt and around... Um, Cities, uh, Cork, Galway, uh, Waterford and so on, um, parents contribute much higher than that because creches are bigger and they have rooms where uh, babies and, and uh, for babies and, and younger children and there are very few state schemes. So, for example, the free preschool years called the ETCHI scheme doesn't apply to that bit of the creche. So there are certainly creches in some cities that are relying a minimum 50% on parents' uh, fees, which have gone. So, you know, Early Childhood Ireland has been saying uh, to the to the department this week to really get this funding agree- funding scheme up and running and to keep paying the state funding until that happens. And we really hope that they will. Uh, we're hoping that next week the fund the the special funding uh, uh, subsidy will be fully in place uh, for creche workers. I suppose the the other point that we keep making to government and not just the Department of Children is that. When the recovery comes, and we we all hope it's soon, parents being able to get back to work and stop working at home or return to work if they've been laid off is totally reliant on our sector being back mm-hmm. open itself. So we play a, a critical role, and I think that's one of the other reasons why government did offer the additional top-up um, that, that it could come from state funding as opposed to um, individual okay. employers having to pay it. Can I just ask you, Francis, I just want to clarify one point. For somebody that maybe has um, a kid or two kids in one of your providers' crashes across the country, they're now working from home. Obviously, they can't use your, your ch- crash facilities. They will still be guaranteed that place, though, when they return. They will, and that's part of the... There was a lot of confusion about that and there, were some, there was some unhelpful public commentary about it, but um, absolutely they will. And um, in fact... To um, sign up to the scheme, that's one of the things that the, the legal agreement states a number of things. One is that, um, uh, that 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 will happen; that the places will be there. Another is that staff um, need to engage in CPD because obviously they're getting, um, in, in most cases, a full wage or close to it. Um, and so the, obviously there, there, there's a there's a ceiling on the level being paid. Um, so there's a number of resources being put in place for that. So yes, absolutely, the that the places will be um, guaranteed uh, for babies and children okay. um, when the recovery comes. Yes, I, I know from talking, Francis, to people anecdotally. Um, I know there's not 
really any benefits or major pluses to the current COVID-19 pandemic that we have at the moment. But I mean, some people trying to be positive about it, looking at their current situations, and they're sort of saying that when we do get back to normality and restrictions are lifted and people can go back to work, that they're hoping to engage with their employer now to see about maybe working, you know, a day or two a week from home because we can now prove we can still manage to keep businesses up and running um, but just working from the home environment. In turn, that might alleviate some of the pressure on the childcare facilities across the country. But what sort of changes do you maybe see happening in that sector? I think that's a really interesting question and it's certainly something which... um, We've been, I suppose, some of the the colleagues in our organisation have been mulling over um, the implications for work-life balance um, and also the wider conversation about, you know, one of one of our colleagues was saying one of the downsides of this for children is that, you know, children um, in preschools who would have been spending the current weeks, particularly after Easter, uh, preparing for school in September now won't have that opportunity. So that's a kind of a downside. And we've already started talking to government about possibly looking to, you know, assuming that things are back up and running by the summer, uh, preschools would have been closing then and possibly looking at trying to facilitate um, some of them to open so that children can prepare for school because they'll have missed that. But to answer your question in a broader way, yes, I think that one of the things that we haven't been good at in Ireland is looking at that whole work-life balance um, uh conundrum if you like for parents and certainly uh, what the last few weeks have taught us is that you know the craziness of thousands of cars on the M50 every morning and other big roads around the country when actually you can be quite effective at home Um, but obviously that for for parents with small children they are making you know huge um, arrangements and sacrifices within the home trying to do all of that many many would say to you well yes I am working from home but I'm having to do a lot of work at night because during the day Mm. um, in two parent uh, families where they're both working or one parent where they're working you know I I can't really do everything during the day I'm having to work a lot at night to catch up because I have to um, you know look after the, the, the children, particularly if they're very young during the day. There's a limited number of activities they can do by themselves, for example. Um, so I think there will still be a need for, um, you know, the, 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 the crash system to exist, even when uh, parents, hopefully their work-life balance is uh, is better. Uh, but also it's important for, for babies and children, for their care and education, that they're out mixing and so on. But certainly a bit more balanced. I mean, hopefully... Um, you know, as a country that hasn't always got that right, even in the first year of children's lives when it's so critical, it would be really good to see at the end of this a big re-examination of the way we live our lives. Um, Certainly Early Childhood Ireland will have things to say about that and we look forward to being part of that conversation. I just want to go back to the point you made about the, um, is it the preschool, uh, the the preschool months just that you mentioned, Francis, I suppose the fact that kids that were in crash facilities will now have been out of them. They'll have missed that early education part for the last couple of months, obviously. And then if they were due to be starting primary school, for instance, or baby infants in September, is there anything at home in the interim that parents can do to prepare them for that transition? Certainly, certainly there are. There are resources um, on our own website, um, uh, earlychildhoodireland.ie. There are lots of resources on the ncca.ie website about transitions. There are certainly things that um, 
that people, that, that parents can do. Um, and certainly in the context of the new wage subsidy scheme for our sector, we have been looking at all of our, you know, the, the continuous professional development resources that we, we provide to members ordinarily. And we certainly will be, um, have been and will be, uh, have been looking at all of that and we'll be releasing that to our own members and encouraging them in turn to get in touch with parents. I mean, certainly the link between um, creches and parents has not been broken. There's lots of things going on on Facebook pages. There's emails going weekly from a lot of creche providers to parents to keep in touch and to send them uh, those kinds of resources and to send videos um, and, and also even on a human level to keep in touch. So there certainly are myriad resources available and Early Childhood Ireland certainly intends making more and more available, particularly for that cohort. And the other thing is, um, they miss their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's even toddler Zoom calls um, happening, which is gorgeous <laughs> um, because, you know, for, for a lot of children, their first time to sort of mix with people who aren't their immediate neighbours or their immediate family is when they go to creche. So these are their first um, friends. Very, very important friendships uh, are made. So at that level, you know, certainly our members are encouraging all of that and facilitating it where they can, where technology allows. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, there are lots of resources and, and lots more to come. Just in terms of some of those changes that there might be within the childcare sector post um, the COVID-19 pandemic or when certainly when people return to work, will there be an onus now, Francis, on the likes of the childcare providers to be, you know, a little bit more flexible in terms of if 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 a particular family can maybe work from home now or they have flexibility, you know, either parent one day a week. So maybe instead of needing the childcare for five days, they may now only need it for three but in terms of securing the spot they know mm. that it's going to be you know there's more there's more of a chance of getting into the facility if they're going to take the five day a week option I mean it, it, will there be that flexibility with providers now? Well there's certainly some flexibility now but the conundrum to do with funding and the way the funding is administered um, uh, providers experience a big hit um, if they uh, if, if they allow flexibility um, that, that might be you know a highly flexible system so certainly from Early Childhood Ireland's point of view, one of the arguments we'll be making in our budget 2021 submission, and it's hard to believe we're already thinking about mm. that, but looking post-recovery, is to try and loosen some of that uh, funding so that um, providers are able to do that. So that, you know, Johnny, three-year-old Johnny has a place. He's, his parents are getting the etchy uh, funding in the morning, uh, so it's a free place. But in the afternoon, if you know, if, if the parents need full full daycare, that the, the the money follows the child, if you like. The place is there. This is what happens in Scandinavian countries. And if parents, if mum or dad is deciding to take every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon off, or whatever it might be, or work from home, that 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 flexibility can be given because the funding isn't immediately pulled from uh, the provider because. That's what happens at the moment. Now, the National Child Care Scheme, which was only uh, introduced just ahead of this crisis in, in real terms, it only really kicked off at the beginning of the year. Um, it does allow for, for some flexibility that previous schemes didn't. So that's very encouraging. And certainly um, our members across the country traditionally have tried to offer that. But the schemes that have come in, introduced by government, yeah. and obviously they're minding public funding, we all get that. But they have been highly inflexible. So even where providers have wanted to do it, um, they haven't always been able to. What they have done is, the, pro- the problem is that in-, in cases where a provider almost matches parents, 
that that's one child in in one place now they can offer the other uh, place to another child but if anything breaks down in the other relationship or either of those children is receive their their parents their the the provider is receiving scheme funding it can all break down so certainly the national child care scheme offers much the potential for much greater flexibility and it's certainly something early childhood ireland will continue to put to government well yeah is is it just as simple though as reworking the administration of the schemes though is i mean is it something that could be done is it i don't mean to say it's just as simple as reworking the admin side of it but i mean is is that what what would just need to happen Absolutely. I think if our funding model were to change and the government has been working on this and it's certainly um, and in fact, they were embarking on nationwide consultations with our members when um, the COVID emergency began, which is really unfortunate. And, I, and we understand they will revisit that in the autumn. And certainly the funding model needs to be looked at in the countries that do well, that have high levels of investment. The money follows the child, if you will. So the creche knows we're going to have 35 children this year. The state provides the funding. And then obviously attendance and all of that is monitored, but it's monitored in the best interest of the child as opposed to a big brother monitoring of the provider, if you will. So it's much more flexible, much more family friendly. And it means that parents can not just decide to work from home every Wednesday or whatever it might be, but also on a day when they have time off themselves, you know, if they have flexi time or they finish early, they can just go along um, and have the flexibility to collect their child, which is absolutely the way it should be. Um, so certainly, you know, Early Childhood Ireland will, will be urging the, the government post the COVID um, emergency to move towards a Scandinavian model. If the government is doing the unthinkable thing that they've told us for a long time, they haven't been, they wouldn't be able to do, which is pay wages in the sector. They're doing that at the moment. It's very welcome. So if things like that are possible, please let them continue and let's look, you know, together um, with our members um, and the government at what might be possible in the long run. OK, we leave it there for the moment. My thanks to Francis Byrne, who's the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Early Childhood Ireland, for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where on today's programme, we're discussing what our daily working lives might look like post-COVID-19. We're asking, what challenges will we start to see when you return to your working environment? Well, for a look at how the working world might be impacted by all of this, we're joined on the line today by the um, Client Services Director of CPL Resources, also a board of uh, member of the Board of Dublin Chamber and the Chair of the Dublin Regional Skills Forum, Siobhan O'Shea. Siobhan, thanks for taking the call today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Siobhan, we're just discussing today, I suppose, what positives there might be post-COVID-19. A lot of people are working from home. A lot of people are running businesses in a way they thought they might never be able to with employees all working from their uh, kitchen tables. I mean, this is something we've discussed, how how people can introduce changes to their working lives um, only a couple of months back. But now we have an opportunity to actually do all of this. Yeah, and I think you're spot on there. I suppose if there's any one good thing to come out of um, this COVID-19 epidemic, it really is about normalising remote working. Um, and I suppose that the whole concept of distributive teams and um, collaborating remotely. Um, so every everything we're doing now has accelerated so fast from a digitalisation perspective. 
um, and companies that, you know, would have been very slow to make the move to um, remote working have had no choice. They've had to embrace the trend in order, I suppose, to sustain and survive in the current climate. And what kind of changes have you seen or heard about, Siobhan, in various different industries? Because some industries wouldn't typically be, um, you know, very adaptable. Like in our own case here, in terms of running a radio station, if, if you told me two months ago that we'd be partially running a radio station from home, I, you know, I nearly wouldn't have believed you that it was possible to do it. I know, and it's interesting. I think even from... Um, from the experience that we're seeing some of our customers going through, I think, you know, that that sentiment would be felt, you know, fairly broadly, um, given, I suppose, the challenge that has been set out for a lot of organisations whose work they would have felt could only be office bound um, and having to kind of think outside the box and how you approach that. So even from a recruitment perspective, I suppose, um, what, what has been really interesting to see is how companies are embracing um remote interviewing. So, you know, using, I suppose, technology to enable solutions um, around continuing to be able to hire and recruit. Um, And some of the technologies that seem to be working quite well are are tools like um, Zoom or Skype or Microsoft Teams. And I suppose a lot of companies might have set out goals um, to have their organizations embrace technology in a better way. Um, And this has really kind of put the momentum behind those goals um, to make it happen. Um, because particularly there's a lot of sectors that are still um, very, um, you know, I suppose busy and, and, you know, you look at sectors like, um, you know, healthcare and medtech and the pharmaceutical industries and, and their demand and, and requirements for talent remain unabated. So I suppose, you know, companies have had to really consider um, moving fast on this in order to be able to, to meet those demands. Siobhan, what has changed in the past two to three months that has allowed companies to move to remote working? So, well, I think, first of all, in some cases, it's a case of necessity. So it wasn't really a choice. Um, people were having to kind of make it happen because um, with social distancing and all the gradual kind of um, rules and mile markers that were being put down by government that companies kind of nearly had to make it happen and embrace, I suppose, solutions that would enable remote working for their people. So even if it was a case that we're seeing it where companies maybe um, had to facilitate acquiring more laptops for their people or actually helping them set up um, from their homes. And, you know, I suppose it's really approaching it with a solutioneering attitude. But we would have seen over the last couple of years um, that a number of organisations would have already been embracing the trend anyways. And I suppose that kind of came about through a um, post-GDPR environment where from a data protection and um, then I suppose even in terms of trends like people wanting to have better life-work balance and, and demanding, I suppose, remote working in order to reduce their commuting times and um, to have that better balance in their lives. So I think there's been a kind of a confluence of factors that have contributed to it. Um, and, and certainly now in kind of, I suppose, the, the COVID environment, uh, it's a necessity in many cases. Do you see this actually sticking? Um, well, I think that, it, you know, in terms of when you look at the shift of behavioural change, it's unprecedented. Um, and we've all done that, I suppose, for the greater good. But I think the consequence of this is we're seeing how productive people can be in remote working. 
And I, you know, when you think about that, if, if a workforce can work from home without a loss of any productivity, it's going to be very hard, firstly, to justify um, real estate costs from a commercial perspective. Um, and equally, people are going to kind of challenge their organizations to say, well, look, do you really, you know, need me to be in the office? when I could actually be as productive as home and I'm gaining maybe two or three hours back into my life by not having to spend time in a car commuting. Um, So I think there'll be a change in attitudes um, from having gone through this experience. Um, And, you know, we would often have talked about it from a future work perspective in CPL and through the work we do in the the Future Work Institute, um, that this is a, a trend that we would have seen grown anyways into the future but it's all just been accelerated as a result of the pandemic. What kind of costs have businesses faced as a result of having to incorporate and buy and develop the new technology in many cases Siobhan to allow for their employees to do remote working or presumably it's something they can claim back? Yeah well I mean in terms of I think um, companies had had varying degrees of development on this so in terms of costs I would say for some it mightn't have been significant because they would have already been able to kind of facilitate and transition relatively speedily. Um, and I think for others, it's it's probably less in terms of maybe the technology shift and more in terms of other other costs right now in terms of being able to kind of, you know, hang on to their people, retain their workforce and support them maybe through provision of the wage subsidy and support mechanisms um, and and basically business survival, I suppose, Andrea, you know, it's a really difficult time for a lot of organizations now. And, you know, that cash is king motto is, is you know, so prevalent in the marketplace. And and really, I suppose people are putting, you know, health is at, at, the, at the heart of the priority here. So, um, you know, organizations really understand that. And uh, But at the same time, I suppose a lot of organizations want to be able to look to the future and to be able to, and reignite their businesses when times improve again. So they don't want to be in a situation where they've lost their people um, by not being able to facilitate other solutions. Do you think, Siobhan, in your own experience, and I know even from speaking to your own clients, but across the, um, the, the chamber in Dublin as well, I mean, will businesses be more likely now to make the provisions to allow their employees do this on a much more permanent basis? I know employees will look for it, but do you think will employers give in? Uh, I think they will because they'll see the benefits um, to themselves and actually we we did a survey through Dublin Chamber recently and um, certainly you would have seen that coming through in terms of some of the outputs and the results in terms of companies are more open-minded now and they've seen the evidence of how this can actually work in, in real life um, and the results are, are kind of, you know, I suppose are, are giving the case really for it um, and I think there might have been a challenge around trust and you know, believing that this would work well. Um, and I think in the main, from what we're hearing, certainly from our own customers in CPL, um, is that people are really surprised at how effectively it's working. And why has that come as such a shock? I mean, was it just that, you know, from a, from a societal perspective here that we just didn't buy into this? Yeah, I think it was a blend of factors. I think there probably was some resistance to change and um, that traditional way of thinking and there was maybe some fear factor um, and I think maybe people just hadn't kind of um, felt that it would ever need to be in you know a necessity the way it's proven to be and so I you know I I think that sometimes the older generations can be a little bit slower to embrace you know the new ways of working um, 
And, you know, we have seen it now clearly that, you know, when you're put into a situation where you have no choice, well, then suddenly it kind of puts the mirror up to you in a different way. Um, and all the evidence seems to have shown now, it would have shown it from research and from those companies who would have shown, you know, would have demonstrated remote working in the past, that there's no decline in output. And if anything, people are more um, eager to prove that it's working because they want to be able to hang on to that opportunity to work remotely. Um, and now that, that kind of anecdotal evidence has kind of come into the real world that we're living in. I mean, I think that one of the stats is that nearly half of the world at one stage has been in quarantine over the last month. So when you think about that, that's a huge number of people now in their homes. Um, so, and, and we all want to feel like we're being useful, that we're contributing and that we're adding value. So I think more than ever, we all are kind of really conscious of making a difference and contributing and being productive in how we spend our time and our days. What's your advice for businesses that are maybe thinking post-COVID-19, Siobhan, you know, that they'll just allow all of their staff remote uh, work remotely or perhaps maybe from kind of regional hubs and actually looking to wind down or close down maybe central sort of HQ offices? So, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what will unfold. Um, a lot of companies obviously are tied into contracts um, from their commercial kind of office spaces, etc. So I don't necessarily think we're going to see this dramatic. Suddenly everyone's going to be working from home um, in a post-COVID environment. But I certainly do think that there will be more of an open-mindedness to um, a blended approach to this. Um, and I suppose I wouldn't, I would just be saying, you know, we still have a long journey to go on this. We don't know what's going to unfold yet. I don't think anyone will be making any rash decisions into the future. Um, but I do think that people will kind of be evaluating, I suppose, ways of working and um, having been through this journey and, you know, really thinking about, okay, we can actually connect our our workforce in other ways than we ever had before. Um, and I mean, even we've seen this in CPL and some of our activities, um, we have some programs about staying connected virtually um, to keep, I suppose, that morale and culture alive. Um, and the possibilities are there. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of companies, need to wait and see. I don't think there's any going to be any, you know, complete revolution, but I certainly think there will be an evolution in terms of how we work into the future. What's your advice, perhaps, Siobhan, to government in terms of how they might look to incorporate um, kind of more remote working now post all of this? Well, interestingly, government would have already been looking at this over the last couple of years. Um, we're just in the process, actually, through my um, Labour Task Force in Dublin Chamber of producing a piece of um, lobbying material on this very subject because we do feel that now, it, more than ever, it's going to shine a spotlight on the benefits of remote working. So even if you think about the impact on the environment and the benefits for sustainability in terms of that whole reduction of fossil fuel use and you know, carbon and air pollution, huge benefits that we're already seeing here in Ireland and globally. Um, and then you link that back into, you know, reduction in, um, you know, mental health issues because it's shown that if you spend more than two hours or, you know, one to two hours in a car a day, that that has a significant impact on your well-being. And um, so there's a whole kind of confluence of factors that 
you know, really demonstrate the benefits of actually embracing this. And I think what it will also do for government is show, um, you know, the huge benefits of having, you know, prioritised broadband rollout nationally as well. So we may see redistribution of business into more rural areas, which will be a huge benefit and has been something that has been on the government's priority list um, for a number of years. Just finally, Siobhan, for advice for employers and employees who are, you know, trying to make the remote working um, work for both of them best. What's your advice to them? So I think, you know, first of all, I would advise that um, keep a structure um, to your approach, um, but don't be hard on yourself. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we're we're all trying to juggle, um, you know, a number of different responsibilities in this kind of new world. And I certainly know even from my own perspective, I've got my kids here. Um, at home and you're trying to juggle that and being a a teacher as well as you know a worker and you know keeping the the house running so I think it's you know don't don't be too hard on yourself realize that you know there's a lot going on right now and um, to protect your overall well-being is the first priority Um, I think from a work output perspective I think be very clear on what you're trying to achieve on a weekly basis because it can feel that um, you know that when you're by yourself um, that it, you know, you need to have those kind of targets and goals to make you feel like that you're achieving something every day. Um, and I think keep up the contact with your colleagues. That's really important. And I think that seeing somebody on video can really make a big difference. It gives you that human connection and that kind of um, personal kind of um, boost, I think, on a daily basis that can really help kind of sustain us through the challenge that we're you know we're undergoing right now Siobhan O'Shea Client Services Director of CPL Resources my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme we'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment Between the Lines on News Talk Well you're very welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself Andrea Gilligan we're continuing our discussion on what our daily working lives might look like post-Covid-19 we're asking what changes will you start to see in terms of your home and working environment Well joining us to discuss how the travel sector might be impacted by all of this is Owen Curry who's the editor of Travel Extra Owen what sort of changes do you see within the um, the travel and transport sector post-COVID-19? Uh, things won't be the same. Uh, the question is what sort of world we're looking at. Um, will we get be taking to the skies? We'll be travelling in the same numbers that we were before. If you look back at the ash cloud uh, 2010, people who had booked independently, they gravitated towards travel agencies afterwards because they realised uh, the dangers that when you're caught there is no recompense. They, no, there is a suggestion that some of the airlines won't be around. That was more emphatic in the early stages of the crisis before all of Europe's airlines started running to governments for state aid. But one of the things I would expect uh, as soon as this begins to clear is a raft of seat sales. Um, if some listeners would remember back to 2009, September, October, November, Ryanair ran one euro seat sales. You didn't be paid one euro to get uh, mm. onto the onto the aircraft. That's the level. Like I know it's twenty would be the cheapest you can get on a Ryanair. That's the level of seat sale they did. Uh, they used to shake off the last recession, and they won't be alone. Um, the Ryanair in particular have a strategy that they want to be first mover back to the skies. They've been keeping their aircraft certified and their pilot certified so they can get in early and catch the pent up demand for travel that will still be there. 
So do, do you see a situation, Owen, that once the restrictions have been lifted, airlines will immediately um, start advertising price and seat sales? And But do you see people willing to book that holiday immediately? That's the big question. How great has the trust been shaken? Uh, the trust may have been shaken by the difficulty getting refunds, for instance. But uh, what we saw in previous instances when there was a real fear there, uh, 9-11 would have been a real fear that once the price comes down to a certain level, people do travel in large numbers. It was about six months after 9-11, they took to the skies in big numbers. It's amazing how many people who are terrified of flying for €250 aren't as terrified when the price comes down to €50. I'm just interested, though, in you know whether or not people will actually, um, holidaymakers, will want to go to some of the countries, the real kind of tourist holiday spots, the likes of Spain, the likes of Italy, that have been so affected by COVID-19. That's really the point. You've hit the nail on the head there. The real issue is what will be open? Is there anywhere to go? And how quickly that will happen? Obviously, Italy and Spain are going through a terrible time, Portugal less so. And the Canary Islands have looked for some sort of, um, they're looking for uh, some sort of escape from the lockdown because their numbers aren't as high as mainland Spain. These are the places we go in large numbers, particularly in wintertime. And I do think that July, August is probably written off at this stage. Uh, September, October is when the industry, the aviation industry, would like to see people returning in numbers. But it does really depend on if there's somewhere to go. And the other thing really is um, the the question of, of when you get there, uh, how big is the devastation in the closures of restaurants, hotels, things like that? Because some of these resorts are going through a crisis for the second summer in a row, having gone through the Thomas Cook debacle where they didn't get paid at all for last summer. Uh, the whole nature of who, where we go is going to be changed and how we get there is going to be changed. Talk us through some of the difficulties as well, Owen, that people you know, we're currently facing in terms of trying to get refunds, holidays that have maybe been booked through, you know, some of the kind of third party sites where they may not necessarily be booked directly with the airline. Like how problematic are these situations at the minute for people? Third party sites bring their own set of problems because the airline don't, sometimes don't have the set, your details to communicate with you, to tell you that your flight is cancelled and to offer you your money back or a voucher, which is what a lot of the airlines are trying to apply at the moment. Even directly booked with the airline, normal rules don't apply. The law is very, very clear. You are entitled to your full refund 14 days after where they, a flight is cancelled, if the flight is cancelled by the airline. And uh, airlines have not been doing that. Ryanair is one of the few that has. Aer Lingus came a little bit later to the table. They were offering 110% vouchers for people. And some of the American and Middle Eastern airlines were saying, here's a voucher for 12 months. At the end of it, if you haven't used it, you can uh, pay back. You can see what the airlines are doing buying time. But the reality is the uh, situation in a lot of households has changed dramatically in the last two to three weeks. So people aren't that interested in in vouchers uh, in the numbers that they would have been in before. So it, what we, what it, it's all in play because Brussels has been lobbied to change the rule. EU 261 still applies in law. The package holiday directive still applies in law. But the package holiday directive and the EU 261 were, were drawn up for very different circumstances. And there's a whole separate set of problems for travel agents 
they were operating a very, very tight margin. They've taken money off clients and they have passed the money on to the airline. And now the airline is saying we're not giving it back while the clients are looking for it back. And uh, while you can, if you're running Aerolingus.com, you can stay well clear of angry people. But if you're in a t- travel agent in town in Ireland, your clients are your friends and your neighbours and everybody around you. So at the moment, the airlines, once if you're due to fly with any airline here in Ireland to Spain or wherever you're going on, for instance, say the 1st of May, once the airline sends you out the email to say that flight is you know going to be cancelled in 14 days time, they have to offer you a 100% full refund. Is that right? 100, 100% full refund by law. What uh, Aer Lingus have done is it, it's quite it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle to find the link. What they always offer, they try to coax you with the voucher first. Uh, that's an, and that's 110% of the fair value. Uh, Ryanair have been allowing people to fill out the form, but they've also been emailing them to say that they're under such uh, pressure paying people back that it will take a little bit longer than normal. That probably that's completely acceptable. The Commission of Aviation Regulation says the law still apply. What is interesting is we're expecting uh, this week, it didn't happen, but perhaps next week, a ruling from the Department of Transport whether uh, vouchers are now acceptable instead of cash refunds. Five European countries have already done that, and there's a strong suggestion that Britain and Germany will join them in the coming week, and at a European level, it's also being lobbied. So all the the laws that are in place uh, are for normal times. These are not normal times, and it's quite clear if the airlines were have to cough up a lot of cash, all that level of bookings, uh, for one for one of them, Lufthansa, which does a lot of long haul, it's three point five billion they have to pay out. So it, the airlines can't survive that level of pressure on their cash, especially when they're not getting any new bookings and they're going to spend the next three months and maybe the next six months with a net outflow flow every month. And this thing of offering um, a voucher, I mean, I think one of the concerns people have about taking the voucher is that they just don't know. There's uncertainty as to whether or not if they take a voucher to use it, you know, that they'll be able to take that holiday within that time frame. You know, is there a, a deadline on when you have to use this voucher? Um, the voucher deadlines vary from airline to airline. Aer Lingus, which is the one most people be, be familiar with, is five years. It's quite generous. Uh, Aer Lingus and Ryanair are both well-funded. They're sitting on a lot of cash. IAG, which owns Aer Lingus, has a lot of cash. Uh, some of the other airlines that are offering you, you're not sure, are they going to be around? How long they're going to be around? Some of the tour operators, are they going to be around? But what we've seen is that governments have changed the laws. Of, you know, There is a very direct law at the EU level saying you cannot give state aid to, a new, to uh, an airline. And one of the first things that happened was Alitalia was renationalised and 500 million put into it by the Italian government. The Americans are putting 25 billion into their airlines. So mainstream airlines are going to be around to use the voucher because governments are coming to save them and catch the, you know, cover that cash crunch that they're all getting. Air France and K- Air France and KLM both getting aid from the French and the Dutch government and Lufthansa. You know, have done a deal with the German government. TUI, the big tour operator, have done a deal for 1.8 billion for the, with the German government for a guaranteed loan. Um, when you come down the line, down the food chain to smaller uh, tour operators, and um, it's not, it's you know, is the voucher how valuable is the voucher mm. if the uh, tour operator itself is is fighting for its existence? I'm interested, Owen, in the kind of changes that you sort of foresee in the um, across the travel sector. I mean, I'm wondering, will people be less likely to maybe take cruises now in the next couple of months? Will they maybe go for more villa or apartment style 
rental or houses rather than maybe, you know, um, staying in a sort of a big hotel or staying in a big apartment complex. Whereas we've seen previously when there's a lockdown or a case of an outbreak, the whole place is shut down. I'm just interested in how people's behaviours might change in terms of in terms of the kind of options they might go for now. Yeah, the cruise sector is about it's about 35,000 people in Ireland every year. Uh, it's been disproportionately hit. It'll take a lot longer to get back. They are well funded. I suspect they'll buy their way back with very big seat sales. They run their cruise ships at a loss as they did during the recession. And that would probably get some traction back because a lot of cruise clientele, they don't go do any other type of holiday. They love their cruises and they keep going on them. But it really has been in the in terms of uh, publicity with between Ruby Princess and um, the Zandam, the Holland America Zandam, they have been, uh, it, you couldn't, they've been almost the worst case scenario crisis uh, stories that have been uh, emerging from this whole. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is when people go to smaller places, the more rural places, yes, uh, the probably a tendency for that away from the big hotels. But again, price will determine. And mm. what, we, what we'll see is the travel industry and the hospitality industry coaxing people back with prices and uh, see how quickly they can get people moving again. And they get over that breach of trust um, that people have. There's two ways the bulk of bounce on the whole beds and access situation. We could have a situation with fewer airlines and less risk, you know, when they've lost a lot of money, they wouldn't be taking risks. That means the the options for places to go will be cut, the regional airports. On our side, the likes of the Knox. On the other side, the smaller airports like the Bilbao's and the Santiago de Compostela and Vigo and places like that, Brindisi in Italy, they won't be served by airlines who are now have lost a lot of money and are don't want to take any risk. The second thing that could happen, though, is that in, um, instead of reducing that capacity and forcing the price up where we all pay a lot more for each flight, uh, it could go the other direction that the number of aircraft that, for instance, Ryanair have, they've 300 aircraft, you have to put them somewhere. They will do everything they can to get people to back into those uh, aircraft with seat sales. The old um, the old adage that uh, put, the, put the seats in the sky and they will come. That's worked for Ryanair down the years. Now, it's worked to, to help them through. They've grown. They've actually thrived in the 9-11 recession and in the global financial crisis. Whether they can thrive in the coming out of this is another um, question altogether. But the evidence from China is people return to the skies pretty spectacular numbers very, very quickly as soon as clearance was there. Yeah, I'm interested to see will the staycation numbers see a big rise this year here at home? That could happen, and there's other things could happen with Spain. And with, if we keep our nose clean on this, which we're doing a pretty good job of, um, you know, the American uh, air, airlines will be looking at their transatlantic routes. Uh, they'll be very reluctant to put aircraft back into Spain and Italy. It's a very short run over and back to Ireland from New York for the East Coast. So we could actually see a little bit of a holiday boom, particularly if the American airlines put a lot of capacity that would be due elsewhere into Ireland. Uh, there are upsides to that. You know, we're seen as if we're seen as a little bit distant from the the major crisis areas and people, particularly North Americans, which is a market of about two million people a year to us, um, 
uh, choose Ireland over Italy and Spain. Uh, the other uh, issue for the in, for the vacation industry is how many of the hotels will survive through this because they're they're facing all sorts of other battles, which apart from the very obvious one of holding on to staff and closing for a period during the lockdown, they're facing um, the, the insurance company telling them that disruption cover doesn't apply or they're looking for claw, get-out clauses on disru- disruption cover. So they're facing a lot of um, exit, you know, stuff mm-hmm. that could close them down. And obviously they depend very, very heavily at this time of the year on the wedding business outside of... Uh, Dublin, which is ground to a halt. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. The editor of Travel Extra, Owen Curry, my thanks to you for joining us. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the GoLide app. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 